Job chapter 5. Call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward. But if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plan of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon, they grope in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouths. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hand also heals. From six calamities he will rescue you, in seven no harm will befall you. In famine he will ransom you from death, and in battle from the stroke of the sword. You will be protected from the lash of the tongue, and need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at the destruction and famine, and need not fear the beast of the earth, for you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many, and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor. Like sheaves gathered in season, we have examined this, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Oh, that I might have my request. That God would grant what I hope for. That God would be willing to crush me to let loose his hand and cut me off, then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of a stone? Is, is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. 
but my brothers are an undepend- as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that cease to flow in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their roots. They go up into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tima look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrive there only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give something on my behalf? Pay a ransom for me from your wealth? Deliver me from the hand of the enemy? Ransom me from the clutches of the ruthless? Teach me and I'll be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat the words of a despairing man as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. But now, be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I've got to do just a quick Last time on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I have to do that. So you have some context here. So far we've seen in Job, the first few chapters in particular, that God says this about Job. It's very important as we look at these words to understand this is God's verdict verdict about Job. Chapter 1, verse 8. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Now we've also got to see something that Job never got to see. Even to the end of the book, Job never saw this. We get a rare glimpse into the heavenly court, right? We get to see behind the scenes why Job is suffering the way he's suffering. Job never saw this. He absolutely had no clue what was going on. If you remember, the angels present themselves to God, to the Lord, to to Yahweh, and so does Satan. And you remember what God does. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Job does the whole fiddlers on the roof thing. I'm sure if he knew about this, he'd say, God, if we're your chosen people, could you choose somebody else for a while? So Job had that situation. So he comes and he says, I have no one like him on earth, a man who truly fears God, shuns evil. And you know what the devil says. The devil says, ha, he serves you because you put a hedge around him, because you take good care of him. And so who, who wouldn't serve God if God treated him like this and protected him? And God says, all right, all right, I'll take it. I'll tell you what, do whatever you want to him, just don't touch him. And if you remember, then we have the first trials of Job which we won't go into all the details this morning. You can, online, we have the sermons. But then if you remember, uh, Satan does these things to Job. Of course, he does leave his wife, which we'll see was a trial in and of itself, this particular uh, wife. 
Because then we have the heavenly council again in chapter 2. Same thing. And this time God says, have you considered my servant Job? He maintains his integrity. He has not sinned uh, by, by what he has said about me. Um, he's maintained his integrity. Even though you've incited me to come against him, what? For no reason. Notice that. Job did nothing wrong. And then you remember what the devil says then. He says skin for skin. In other words, a man will give everything for, for, for his health. But let me touch the man and I'll surely have him curse you to your face. And then God says, okay, you can touch him, but do not kill him. And then if you remember, he has boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his soles, if you remember that. And that's when his wife, the dearest and nearest to him, says what? Curse God and die. And if you remember, that's the whole challenge of the book. It's not ultimately a book about suffering. It's a book about can God create a people redeem a people for himself by his grace that serve him not because of what they get from God but because of who God is. You remember, that's the challenge. And again, he passes in chapter 2. He says to his wife, you are speaking like a foolish woman. Shall we not accept trouble from the Lord as well as good? And then we break into the section, of course, where he laments. Now that the suffering has settled in, He's got his three friends who have been mourning with him for a week, and then they do something that they probably shouldn't have done. They open up their mouths. And their mantra, as we're going to see for some odd 30-odd chapters, man, they are like a broken record. And kids, those were these circular things that we had. And they would just like continue. You know, if they were broken, they would go, number nine, number nine. But anyway, they were like this broken record, and, and they were a great trial to Job. As we're going to see, they should have been his comforters, and instead they kept pouring vinegar in his sore. They were definitely, uh, there was three of them, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they were the poster children for those who add insult to injury. Another old saying my mom used to say. But they definitely did that. The poor man was suffering terribly, and they just continued to add to his agony. But one of the things we need to see, and we're going to jump into this headlong, is that Job's ultimate struggle, as we'll see in his laments, his crying out in pain, is not his loss of wealth. It's not his loss of health. It's not even the loss of his children or the trial that his wife had become. It's not even the annoying advice of his friends. It's the invisibility and the silence of his God, who he had walked with faithfully, had known intimate fellowship with, and now, while he's on this bed of suffering, he hears nothing from God. This Job has a hard time swallowing. It's a pill that he can't swallow. And so we see Job is left bleeding on the floor, wondering why God's hand is so unbearably upon him, all the while dealing with the profound pain of friends who keep blaming him for his suffering. Thanks for nothing. So we're going to see there's three cycles of conversations between Job and his friends and Job and God. 
or actually Job crying out to God. God doesn't talk until totally toward the end. And that, I hope some of you can be here for that one because that's going to be a good one. Turn to the next slide. I want to show you the cycles. Please. That's okay. If I have it on here, I hope I do. There it is. So you'll see we're going to be dealing with the first cycle for a while. Uh, Eliphaz speaks. That's what we picked it up in the middle of this morning. I should have mentioned that. Job replies. Then his buddy Bildad jumps in. Job replies. And then Zophar jumps in. And then Job replies. So we're going to be dealing with that, the first part of the first cycle. And this happens two more times. Um, just so you have an idea of the book. All right. So I'm only going to uh, deal with this cycle for a few sermons, or we would be here like some of the Puritans uh, preaching through Job for the next five years, which I don't know that any of you would put up with that for that long. I don't know that I would, but this will be good. So, okay, what I want us to see this morning is really how a righteous man struggles with the undependability of his friends and the silence of his God while under severe suffering. So I'm going to repeat that. How a righteous man struggles with the undependability of his friends and the silence of his God while under severe suffering. And we're going to just look at it from three uh, viewpoints here. We won't even get to the third one this morning. We're going to deal with the first two. The first one we're going to look at is the bad counsel of a friend. And we're going to be dealing a little bit with Eliphaz's counsel. So what we have to see here is how, even though it was well-meaning to some extent, how totally and utterly inappropriate Eliphaz's counsel was. And I'm going to summarize it for you. In chapter 5, he clearly implies that Job's suffering, listen, this is important, is evidence that he's played the part of a fool. He's basically calling Job a fool. Because in verses 2 to 7 of chapter 5, he says that resentment kills a fool and that he's seen a fool taking root. But what happened to him? Suddenly, he's, his house was cursed. Sound familiar? Suddenly, his children were far from safety. What happened to Job's children? They were all killed. Listen, let's just stop right there. That's a strange way of trying to comfort a man whose house suddenly seems cursed, and whose children were suddenly killed in a horrific accident. A catastrophe. What You've got to understand what Eliphaz is saying and drink this in. He's saying your children were killed because of some wicked thing you've done. How do you think Job felt? The man is under severe trial, losing 10 of his children in one shot, and one of his best friends says, it was because of you. Let me give you a contemporary example in case you think this is just some Old Testament, long ago type of thing. We, were just, we just had a nice night out with a couple of friends, a fellow pastor and his wife, and she was telling the story, and it was uh, right before I have to preach on this, I thought it was interesting the Lord had her share this with me. She lost a child. And as anyone knows, especially any ladies um, who have gone through this, it is unspeakable, the pain of losing a child. 
And a Christian woman came to visit her. While she didn't, she said she was so tired, so worn out, didn't even really want visitors, but of course you have to perk yourself up and say, thank you for coming. And then she had the nerve to say, confess your sins and this will never happen to you again. That's what Eliphaz is saying. He's saying, dude, you had to do something awful. Give glory to God, because this doesn't happen to good people. If you were righteous, this couldn't possibly have happened. We have a just and good God. You must have done something. As we've seen in earlier weeks, he, his view of God was way too small. He thought he could put God and God's ways in a box. He thought it was an absolute rule to say, if you're righteous, you're blessed, and if you're wicked, you're cursed, period. No exceptions to the rule. And if there's one thing the book of Job says is God is God, and he is all wise, and we don't know why he, always, he does the things he does. Certainly simplistic answers are not helpful. I remember I was a new believer and friends of mine from high school who weren't yet believers were telling me that they have this crazy born again friend of theirs across the street for them. And I was so excited as a new believer. Oh, great, he's a believer too. It was great and I met him and he gave me this tape. He goes, yeah, this is the guy I like to listen to. His name is Kenneth Copeland. And he goes, listen to this. This is really good stuff. This is like, so I, I always love listening to the Bible on cassette. I love to listen to preachers. And I really wanted to grow, especially as a young believer. So I put on my Sony Walkman. So I, I moved up from vinyl to cassette. Maybe by then we'll talk about CDs and MP3s. But so I put on my Sony Walkman. And I'm listening to this guy talk. And my blood is beginning to boil over. He's talking about there's a woman whose baby was really sick. And she prayed, God, if it be your will, heal my little baby. And unfortunately, it was not God's will, and the baby passed. And so Kenneth Copeland had the nerve to tell this lady, you gave the devil permission to kill your baby because you prayed, if it be your will. You got to tell God. And I remember being so furious. And then, and then, then the fury turned to brokenheartedness. Because this person who my friend said is a believer, this is what he's hearing? This is the kind of teaching that he believes is great? And that he spread, he was so excited to give me this tape? My brothers and sisters, sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. I remember going, have anybody ever heard of Larry Crabb? He's a, a Christian psychologist, and um, he's, he's done a lot of good work. He's, he's a, a godly man. And um, I, I went to a conference in his later uh, years, so to speak, because his philosophy changed a little bit, I believe, became more biblical as he went on. Um, his earlier stuff was good, but he became more biblical. And I remember him telling this story, and it was awesome. He said, sometimes he listens to clients. And he says, it's, it's so complicated. He catches himself thinking, oh, man, they really need a professional. And then he goes, wait a minute, I am a professional. But the funny thing about that is, what I, what I found refreshing is, he's admitting that this is beyond me. 
Some things in God's ways and his mysterious ways, I don't care how educated you are, I don't care how experienced you are, compared to God, you were born today. God's wisdom is infinite. And it's something that Job will be struggling with for many, many chapters. And in chapter 7, we find out it was many months that Job dealt with this suffering. But so then, then uh, Eliphaz isn't done yet. Um, he then implies that God is punishing Job because Job has been crafty. He's a scheming type of man. He's deceitful. And he must be guilty of some kind of mischievousness. And we see this in verses 12 to 14. Um, these are beautiful words in and of themselves. Listen, as a matter of fact, Paul quotes them in Corinthians. Listen, he, meaning God, God thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At, at noon they grope as in the night. Now listen, those words are eloquent they're beautiful, they're true. The Apostle Paul himself quotes them in a different context in 1 Corinthians. But what's the problem? The problem is Eliphaz misapplies them horribly by applying them to Job. Because Job wasn't crafty. He wasn't deceitful. It wasn't something that he did. So his main point becomes this. Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. So what he's basically saying is take it like a man. God's disciplining you because of something you did. Now I want you all to understand something. Sometimes God does do that. Now, you know, when I look at Job and I look at me, I right away say it had to be something I did because <laughs> I know I mess up. Amen? And I know that God disciplines those he loves. And 9.99% of the time is because of something I did. But the problem when you counsel other people is you have no idea, do you? Amen? You don't know what the situation is. They, and we're going to see in a moment. What, they, what folks who are suffering like this need is they need love. They need companionship. They need someone to come and bring them what? Comfort. They don't need judgment, speaking about things that you don't know about. And the interesting thing is here, Job, again and again throughout the whole story here, Job basically says, show me. You keep telling me it's some sin I've done. All you have to do is point one out. That's what I was talking about earlier. If I said to my wife, point one out, I better put a helmet on, get some you know, mouth guard, because there's going to be a lot of things coming at me. Job has been saying, just point it out, and they have not. 30 chapters, they can't come up with something concrete. And, and still Eliphaz says, if you acknowledge your offense and submit to God's discipline, he'll bless you again. Now, the, I would say this is the comment that gets second place for the most insensitive thing said to this poor brother Job. Look at verse 25. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. Let that sink in. He just lost his many kids. He just lost his future. And you're telling this man glibly, just repent. 
and your children will be many. I don't know about you, but if God takes one of my kids, a thousand aren't replacing them. You with me? Elmer Smick rightly says this. It is not what Eliphaz knew that was wrong. It is what he was ignorant of, God's hidden purpose, that made all his beautiful poetry and grand truth only a snare to Job. While things he said are good even for a sufferer to contemplate, such as the disciplining aspect of suffering, even these words we know from the prologue do not apply to the case at hand. We know they're wrong because we got to see into heaven in chapters 1 and 2. Well, Job is going to have something to say about this, and that's the second thing and the last thing I want to point out from the text. Job's complaint against his friend. And he will also, by the way, be complaining to God. That's more in chapter 7. We'll get to that next time. I'll only mention it a few times here. But so Job starts off by basically saying this. Let me put it New City style. So my words have been a little impetuous, have they? You think? I'm sitting here dying. I'm on a, a, a bed of pain. This is what he says. If only my anguish, anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sands of the sea. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. He's saying, no wonder I'm crying out. God's hand is crushing me. Easy for you to pontificate with a healthy, sound mind and body. And I think that's another thing we're going to see through Job's speeches. Remember, this is a guy in severe pain. When I'm in severe pain, I remember when I was in the hospital, I was recovering from a minor operation, and Mary was like upset more people weren't visiting me. I'm like, get away from me. I don't want anybody talking to me. I'm in, you know, like, just get out. And yet Job was definitely a patient. By the grace of God, persevering man. You know when the doctor says, on a scale to one to ten, how much pain are you in? <laughs> you know, how many of us want to like punch him in the, you know, <laughs> on a scale? So th this is how Job answers what the scale is from one to ten. This is what God asks for. I wish God would grant me a request to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. This is a sweet spot in Job's lament. First of all, I want you to see something very important. As severely as Job was suffering, he never once entertains the thought, listen to me, of suicide. Never once does he say, I'm going to kill myself. But you know what he does say? Finish the job, God. If you're going to take my life, your hand has to do it. It's your place to do it. You've put me in this place, and I have one request of you. Please put me out of my misery. You realize how much suffering he had to be in to say that? But there's something even more powerful that I noticed as I meditated on this text. What's his consolation? Why does he want to die? 
He wants to die because he would have at least one consolation in this suffering, that he did not deny the words of the Holy One. What was the whole big challenge? Remember what Satan said? I will have him curse you. And Job is saying, this is what Job is saying. He's saying, I don't know how much longer I can keep this up. I'm a mere mortal. I don't want to sin against you, Father. I don't want to curse you. But I don't know how much longer I could do this. Take me before I sin against you. David Kleins puts it this way. Job is like a prisoner under torture who fears the moment when he will break. The possibility that he will curse God and die has become a vivid one for him. His hope is that he may still remain loyal to the unfathomable God, the Holy One, who has inexplicably, explicably, excuse me, become his enemy until the moment of his death. No greater boon could be granted a doomed man, no greater comfort in the agony of death than to know that he has not betrayed his God. John and I were talking in the study this week. And I love what John said as we were bouncing it back and forth. He says, well, I guess what Job is saying here is, if it's a choice between sinning against God or dying, I choose death. And then I remember John saying, that's convicting. I said, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, that is deeply convicting. How many of us would be able to say that? And that's why, to me, the old adage of Thomas A. Kempis, Luther read some of his stuff, says this. He says, Adversities do not make a man frail. They show what sort of man he is. And I think it's interesting. Talk about adversity in this righteous man's life. And what's his main concern? Think about this. He doesn't want to sin against God. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I pray that as God conforms me more and more into the image of his son, that that's what my life would be about. That I'd be more concerned with sinning against God than dying. That I would fear sin more than death. Now we kind of get to see that when, when God says he has no one like him, that ain't no exaggeration, is it? You don't meet too many people that say, I'd rather die than sin. Look, I remember in the New Testament something very similar to this. If you remember, Paul had a disciple named Timothy. Anybody remember him? And Paul said this wonderful thing about Timothy when he was going to send, them, send him to the Philippian church um, to see how they were and encourage them. He said this about Timothy. Listen, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. It's convicting, isn't it? And I often wonder, Whose interest am I looking out for? Why do you serve God? Right? Because that's the question. Why does Job serve God? And it's a good one to ask ourselves. Is it because of what we can get from him? Is it because of the promise of peace and happiness and joy? Or is it because he is a good, holy, awesome, righteous God who loved us enough to provide us with the sacrifice of his own son? It's a question for who he is and what he's done for us to save us. 
Now Job moves from that admission and that plea to a very interesting thing. Look at verse 14. He says this, A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. The second half of that verse has been variously translated. But even if we take the NIV's translation, also the New King James translation, the point Job is saying is pretty simple. What is a friend for if it's not to bring comfort, to bring solace, to bring empathy in times of trials and suffering? Listen, who doesn't feel a little warm and fuzzy? I was just thinking about this the other day. When the least talented member of the Beatles, Ringo, comes out and goes, what would you do if I sang at it too? Like right away you're like, right? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Right? And then what happens? I get by with a little help from my friends, you know? And you think about it, it brings me tears to be honest with you. The humble one, the weak one, the one who sings out of tune, the rest of the band comes in, right? And does what? Sings beautiful harmony to support, to help, to be there. What are friends for if they're not there for a time of need? And Job, in severe pain, looks at his three friends and says, when I needed you, when I need you most, you're utterly undependable. And he gives the example, and I'll be quick on this because he, he's very eloquent. He tells a long story. But his point is this. He says, you know, when you're in the desert, and there are these intermittent streams, and when all is dry, you search for these little streams, and, and you go, and you, you take all this time and effort to get to these, stream, these streams with extreme hope that you're going to find some water and a dry and weary land, and you get there, and, and just when you need it, it's dried up. Job doesn't hold back. He says, that's you. You're like an intermittent stream that just when... A guy needs it. You're no help. And then it's interesting. Listen, we're almost done here, but I, I, I can't stop yet. It's interesting how he says, you look at me and notice this, and you're afraid. Do you ever notice when you see folks who are suffering? It makes you a little uncomfortable, right? The beginning, when they first saw Job, if you remember in the text, it says they couldn't even recognize him. So first of all, I think it just simply means the guy's got sores all over. He was cutting himself with, with broken pottery. I mean, he was a mess. He says, you look at me and you're afraid. But I think it's deeper than that. I think he's saying this. I was one of you. And I'm going through this severe suffering. And it wasn't because of anything I'd done. And I think that scares you to death. You know why? Because it means God is not in a box. It means you can't control God. You are not the potter. You're the clay. And I think the thought of the idea that you can't control things, and especially God, terrifies you. Later on, he even says, look at me. You know what that means, right? They were looking away because they couldn't take it. I think this is a good time now that the air went down to give you this quote from this really awesome professor that I know, Thomas Adamo. He's a professor. 
And he says this. Uh, we were going back and forth on texts, which, by the way, I love it. I am so encouraged when my folks write me back and forth about the preaching text. That shows me we're feeding together and we're interested. But he said this. There's a very big tendency to put forth arguments in terms of if you do this, God will do this every single time. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. Listen, I love the way he puts this. We can't even predict how our kids are going to act in many circumstances. How can we possibly dare to predict how an all-knowing, all-sovereign God is going to act in every single particular situation? That was good, wasn't it? Come on, that was good. Well, for Job's friends, they simply weren't willing to entertain the idea that their world and life view needed serious amending. And Job says, here's another thing. Job says, have I ever asked you for money? Did I ever ask you to ransom me? I never asked you for anything. All I wanted was a little understanding. A little companionship. A little, guess what? A little sympathy. A little empathy. How painful are honest words, he tells them. What do your arguments prove? And then he goes on to, to say, there's a, there's a plea here. He says, would I lie to your face? Verse 28. Relent. Don't be unjust. Reconsider. My integrity is at stake. Is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? I want to close with this for time's sake. Job would rather die than curse his God. That is certainly something that we would want to see God work in our own hearts. Amen? But there was one who would rather die than live without us. The Lord Jesus Christ. He saw us in our sin. He took pity. And at the behest of the Father, he went to the cross willingly he died, not because he sinned, but for our sins. He died, listen, for Job's sin. Job was the most righteous of his time, but still compared to God, he was a wicked sinner. So this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know what you're waiting for. He loves us so much that he was willing to take our place. He was the real innocent sufferer. And at the end of chapter 7, Job acknowledges that he's a sinner, by the way. That's why I wished I could have made, brought that in this morning. Jesus never sinned. He died for your sin, and he died for mine. And the beauty of this, I'm going to really close now. The beauty of this is, even though Job didn't know it until way toward the end, when you know Christ, your suffering has purpose. It's in the hand of God. It's for his glory even though you may not see it at the time. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this book, 42 chapters. It was important enough to include it in your word. It's important enough for James to say, consider Job and his perseverance and what the Lord eventually brought about. And it's important enough for us to know that when we are see our friends, our loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ 
going through it, that we can just cry with them, we could just hold them, we could pray with them and for them, and we could just mourn with them, Lord, and admit that we don't always know why. And yet, God, we know that you are infinitely wise and good and holy. And so, God, we pray that as we minister your love and we minister your gospel, we would stick to what we know is true and not talk about things we have no knowledge of. We acknowledge you alone are God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.